0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arcea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today, in our 395th episode, we don't have any news, but we do have a discussion about why Ankylosaurus is the best dinosaur.
1: And we have had episodes about Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus, so it only seemed fair to look at Ankylosaurus.
0: Well, we did have Ankylosaurus as our dinosaur of the day in our fifth ever episode. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's been over seven years since then, and there's actually been quite a few updates. So I think it's worth doing. Plus, back when we first covered Ankylosaurus, we hadn't found Zool or Borealopelta yet, which both helped us understand an ankylosaurus in general much better. And then you also have Dinosaur of the Day, Egyptosaurus, Yep. which I think is a sauropod.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I always have to get a sauropod in there if I can.
0: Yeah. And I've got a fun fact, which is about Ankylosaurus as well.
1: Bring it back to the original topic. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But before we get into that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we'd like to thank Cameron, Reed, Cosmic Parasaur, Sezisaurus, Bill Jago, Aria and Tristanosaurus, Chris, Joaquin, Jackson Crawford, and Diplodocate.
1: Thank you so much and welcome to our dinosaur community.
0: So jumping into why Ankylosaurus is the best dinosaur.
1: Okay, why? (laughs) Convince me or try.
0: I will try. So first I'm going to lay out all the details of Ankylosaurus and then I'll summarize what details of that make it the best. Okay. So again, we covered it back in 2015 and actually we did a pretty good job in 2015 when we covered it. I think you probably wrote up our talking points because- You're better at researching that stuff. (laughs) But it was back when we were rotating between facts. So you would say a fact, and then I would say a fact, and we go back and forth. It's been a lot of changes since we first did that. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned there was Zool and Borealopelta, which were both discovered, but also Victoria Arbor and Jordan Mallon wrote a great ankylosaurus paper in 2017, sort of redescribing the genus, more or less, from head to tail. We also missed some interesting background details about ankylosaurus in general, and anky- ankylosaurus in particular back then. So quick terminology refresher on ankylosaurus. So the taxonomy of ankylosaurus from broadest category to most specific, well, maybe not broadest, but broad. You've got ornithyschia, which includes most of the non-sauropod herbivores. Ankylosaurus is in that. Next is thyreophora, that's mostly ankylosaurus and stegosaurs. They're the sister taxa. Then there's Ankylosauria within that, which is when we say ankylosaurs, we're talking about Ankylosauria. Then there's Ankylosauridae inside that, which is ankylosaurids. That's how we always abbreviate that. So there's ankylosaurs broadly, which includes nodosaurids and ankylosaurids. Ankylosaurids are the ones with tail clubs, whereas nodosaurids don't have tail clubs. And that can be further divided, but usually we just stop there and stick to Ankylosaurid and notosaurid, the club and no club. And lastly, there is Ankylosaurus, the genus within Ankylosaurids or Ankylosauridae. There's only one Ankylosaurus species, and that's Ankylosaurus magnaventris, but you really only have to say Ankylosaurus because it's just the one species. Mm -hmm. Just how we like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) By us, mean us Ankylosaurus fans?
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, just in general, also dinosaur fads, it's a lot easier when there's just one genus. Yeah. You can just stick with the genus name. As a quick history of the naming, Ankylosaurs, the sister group to Stegosaurs, includes all the non-clubbed Notosaurids and clubbed Ankylosaurids, like I was saying. Notosauridae was named by Marsh in 1889 to 1890 with Notosaurus, and that discovery had a partial tail clearly without a club day, on the other hand, was named about 20 years later by Barnum Brown with Ankylosaurus. Hmm. It took till later before somebody realized that they belonged together and lumped them in with Stegosaurus and all that kind of stuff. There are three really important specimens of Ankylosaurus. Mm-hmm. Two of them are from Alberta, Canada. There's AMNH 5214, which is the only well-preserved tail club and the best-preserved skull which is, quote, mounted behind a glass panel that cannot be removed, end quote.
1: Oh, ever.
0: (laughs) I don't know. That was what they said when they were reanalyzing Victoria Arbor Mm -hmm. and Jordan Mallon. So interesting. You can see it at the American Museum of Natural History, and it is beautiful. There's also CMN 8880, which is the largest skull. Nice. Nice. Not as well preserved as AMNH 5214, but it is a little bit bigger. It's not that much bigger, though. They're both incredibly huge. Mm -hmm. Then there's one really important specimen from eastern Montana, and that is the holotype.
1: Well, that makes it arguably (laughs) the most important specimen.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, it's got a higher specimen number than the other AMNH one. It's 5895 versus Mm. 5214, which means it wasn't found as early. It's a partial skull and, quote, the most complete post-cranium of any of the known specimens, end quote.
1: That's probably why it's the holotype.
0: Yes. But interestingly, now we basically only use the skulls to compare ankylosaurs, partly because they usually are the thing that preserve, but also because that's where a lot of the differences are.
1: Yeah. But when it was first named, it was helpful to have the body.
0: Yes, that's true. But if in hindsight, we might have gone with the more the better preserved skull as the holotype. The one that can
1: never be removed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> they just said it cannot be removed, not oh, okay. never be removed. Got it. Can't be removed for their purposes for that paper, I think is really what it's about. So one paper we didn't mention in our original Ankylosaurus dinosaur of the day was the original description by Barnum Brown, which was published in 1908 in the Bulletin of the American Museum of Natural History. And originally... And Kylosaurus was seen as very Stegosaurus-like. Hmm. He wrote, although, quote, the genus differs so much from the more typical Stegosaurs that it becomes necessary to form a new family for its reception, end quote.
1: Is that because they didn't find any plates? <laughs>
0: It's just, there were a lot of differences throughout the body, especially that included the head. So you could tell the head of an ankylosaurus is very different than any of the stegosaurus, Mm -hmm. but there were differences also in the ribs and the vertebrae and lots of details. So they actually named Ankylosaurus Day just before ankylosaurus in the same paper. So it was really about the family, whereas Notosaurus went the other way, named Mm -hmm. the species first and genus and then the group later. They describe ankylosaurids as a, quote, massive, short, and broadly triangular skull, and that the th- teeth are described as stegosauroid.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, since that was what was familiar at the time.
0: Yeah, and thyreophorans have pretty similar teeth between stegosaurs and ankylosaurs. Mm-hmm. They also describe ankylosaurids as having a short neck, a stiff backbone, which is, quote-unquote, solid throughout. <laughs> and
1: They are solid animals.
0: Yes, And to that end, they say it's, quote, broad, covered with heavy armor plates arranged in rows, end quote. Hmm. Which sounds a lot like a stegosaur. When you kind of describe what an ankylosaur looks like and all that without actually seeing it, it does sound a lot like a stegosaur.
1: They both have the plates, but the plates look very different.
0: Yeah. Well, some of the stegosaurs, though, have smaller plates. They're not all like stegosaurus with the crazy huge ones. True. It's a pretty good, accurate description of ankylosaurids. Although it's notably missing the tail club, it's not anywhere in the description of ankylosaurids, Mm. but that's because they didn't find it in that first specimen. And that's really their defining characteristic now, is that it's an ankylosaur with a tail club makes an ankylosaurid.
1: Right. The short triangular skull, though, we hear that a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. For ankylosaurus, the original description, the key features they pointed out were that the skull plates are fused together into a, quote, continuous sculpted shield, which I think is a great description. <laughs> also that the nostrils are far forward. That's changed a little bit. Now we actually consider them to be kind of far back for an ankylosaur. The vertebrae are fused to the ribs, which is really cool. It's like the solid, incredibly solid mass. Mm-hmm and that the vertebrae have especially short spines sticking up, still considered accurate. But again, no mention of a tail club because they didn't find one. They did find a couple dozen osteoderms though, and they recreated Ankylosaurus as an extremely armored animal. Basically, they took the largest scutes and packed them together all over its back, like as if it was a solid mass of nothing but huge (laughs) plates of armor all over its body. It would have been really difficult to bend Mm -hmm. (laughs) as an ankylosaurus if it actually had that many closely packed big osteoderms all over its body. Of course, Barnum Brown was assuming it had a very rigid back, almost like a turtle, Mm -hmm. so that wouldn't matter all that much if it was super packed with armor. They also recreated its silhouette using a stegosaurus to fill in the gaps, and there are a lot of gaps. It's missing all the limb bones the hips, and most of the tail. Hmm. As a result, it looks pretty weird, the very first reconstruction. Because
1: it's too stegosaurus-like?
0: It's basically too tall. Mm. (laughs) So they used stegosaur-length legs, stegosaurus specifically, since they didn't find ankylosaurus legs. And so its overall posture is a lot like a modern stegosaurus, except with a more curved back and tail reaching the ground. So it's like sort of really high at the hips and then... The the tail tail and the head sort of slough off from that point in a really weird way.
1: Yeah, and now we know that was definitely not the case.
0: Yes, but it did have its head near the ground, although its tail shouldn't have been maybe on the ground, but the ends of it were a little bit closer because that's where we had found some details. They also assumed it had just a boring tail with nothing at the end because again...
1: Well, why wouldn't they? Because there was nothing... They hadn't found anything to tell them otherwise.
0: Yeah, but they could. I mean, since it's all based on Stegosaurus, they could have given it spikes on the tail or something. Oh, true. Brown also drew comparisons to large glyptodonts in that first paper.
1: That makes sense.
0: Which is pretty cool because that's something that we talk about now to this day, those huge armored, basically like armadillo-ish or turtle, I don't know even how to describe them. Super cool (laughs) armored things, much more recent than Ankylosaurus. But it's a fun paper to look at and it's available for free. So you can check out our show notes for the link if you want to see all these early drawings and the early description. It's written in a pretty accessible way too. There are some jargony words, but it's not too bad.
1: Barnum Brown was a good writer.
0: Yes, definitely. So filling in some of the gaps with the tail club, Victoria Arbor and Philip Curry published a paper in Journal of Anatomy talking about their tail clubs. And basically they summarized the process of ankylosaurids With tail clubs evolving from other ankylosaurs that didn't have tail clubs in three steps. So, first, you've got the earliest ankylosaurs with fully flexible tails. Hmm. That's in the Jurassic. Mm -hmm. Then, after about 50 million years, you've got ankylosaurs with a tail fused into a stiff club at the end of the tail. And then, after about another 50 million or so years, they evolved a big old club at the end of that stiff tail.
1: Hmm.
0: So, it sort of goes from whip. To bat to hammer
1: <laughs>
0: was the evolution that they saw pretty consistently looking at different ankylosaurs. There's another really fun paper about ankylosaur tails by Walter Coombs, which was published in Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences in 1995. and he looked at how ankylosaurs held their tails in the spectrum of dragging them on the ground, sticking straight up.
1: Oh, that'd be funny if they stuck straight up.
0: <laughs> yeah. So basically, He cited a downward angle of vertebrae from the hips leading towards the tail Mm -hmm. as an indication that it was holding its tail club close to the ground. And it's difficult to know the exact direction of the base of the tail since the vertebrae aren't rigid like they are at the tip of the tail, but you can get a rough approximation based on that angle at the hips. And what he did was assume that the tail was straight and aligned with the sacrum, those hip bones. And then so it would be angled down. And then the only question is, how long is the tail if it's long enough to reach the ground? So the cliff notes is they concluded the tails weren't long enough, so they probably didn't drag on the ground, but they were very close to the ground. In the paper, they describe an ankylosaurid tail club that was smallest from Western North America. And it was arranged generally like a euoplocephalus tail club with the two long osteoderms on the side And then presumably missing the minor osteoderms at the end. So this one is a longer than it is wide. So like opposite of anodontosaurus (laughs) with the big spike sticking out the side. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's also missing the vertebrae of the handle. So they basically just have the club. But this one is about 14 centimeters wide by 13 centimeters long and about eight centimeters high or five and a half by five by three inches. And roughly that's about a stack of eight CDs in their cases.
1: That's an interesting comparison. CDs.
0: (laughs) Well, it's close. I was looking for something that was really close in size. That
1: might date us a little bit.
0: (laughs) I guess, but I think most people have seen a CD in a CD case. Yeah. So you know about how big it is. It's smaller than a DVD case. If you stack up eight of those, it'd be too long.
1: Mm, I didn't know that.
0: You didn't know DVD cases were bigger than CD cases?
1: No, I never compared.
0: Okay. Anyway, back to the ankylosaur. (laughs) If you don't, if you aren't familiar with CD cases, you can just go by the five and a half inches by five inches by three inches. So that's the smallest tail club ever found, which is still fairly big. Based on that tail club and lots of other tail clubs and the position of the tail, they made some conclusions about possible uses for ankylosaurid tail clubs. Many of these have since changed, but I think it's fun to go back to where we were. What is this now? Almost 30 years ago. They said, quote, intraspecific combat using the club seems clumsy and implausible. And they cited that we don't have modern tetrapod analogs of animals attacking each other with their tails, mm-hmm. which is a fair point. But modern large tetrapods are mostly mammals, not armored reptiles. Mm-hmm. We're also smaller than ankylosaurs, with the exception of like elephants, which have a totally different body plan. And so it's, it's hard to compare. They also said, quote, the vast majority of structures used for antagonistic combat are on the head or feet. Headbutting, utilizing the broad, flat, approximately triangular skull is a more reasonable form of intraspecific combat for ankylosaurids. And that's cited from a previous paper by Kenneth Carpenter back in 1985.
1: That's interesting.
0: I really love the idea of ankylosaurs very slowly charging at each other in order to butt heads. (laughs) In your first, when we did the dinosaur of the day, you said that they walk about six miles an hour at tops. <laughs> so like two things go at six miles. That's like a fast walk well, towards each other.
1: They're so heavy yeah, and so solidly built. It's yeah. hard to imagine them being fast.
0: Yes. And it's not like they're like giraffes where they could like swing their head with some force because their necks are so short.
1: Yeah. They could swing <laughs> their tails with some force.
0: But not their head. So yeah, it's pretty funny to think of they have these big triangular heads, obviously, for bashing into each other. It's just funny to me. Obviously, hindsight's 2020. Yeah. But
1: it's easy to laugh now, but yeah. before we knew much.
0: Yes. They also say, quote, defense against predators is the most reasonable primary function for the tail club, but this does not exclude its use for other purposes. End quote.
1: Hmm. What other purposes?
0: So I think that's a great way to put it. Basically. They're saying that it's using its tail club for defense, but maybe it was using it for other things, like maybe it was intraspecific combat, maybe it was a display structure, oh, I it could see. be any number of multiple purposes, and we often say that with evolution, right? Animals don't evolve a structure just for one single ever use. I mean, sometimes they do. But when you can, you use an organ or a part of your body for as many things as possible.
1: It'd be fun if they use their tails to like knock some food off some trees. (laughs) Like
0: shaking a a nut tree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. There's some pretty fun speculation about what ankylosaurs would have aimed for using their tail, mm-hmm. citing Coombs from 1979, that the tail club would have been, quote, most effective against the relatively fragile metatarsals of an attacking theropod. And that is really omniscient because Zool Cruravastator, which the species name Cruravastator means destroyer of shins, mm-hmm. is based on that exact same analysis. And that's now over 40 years later, that analysis is holding up. So, even though the metatarsals are in the foot, in theropods, they were effectively their shins because they walked on their tiptoes. And then above the metatarsals and the ankle bone, you get that backwards knee look that theropods and birds have. So if Ankylosaurus was aiming for those metatarsals, which looks like the lower leg or upper foot, it fits in perfectly with that destroyer of shins. It's like the same idea. They pointed out that swinging higher towards the leg or towards the hip doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of a defensive strategy. So if an ankylosaur was going to try to hit, say, a T-Rex coming at it in the upper leg, like in the femur, rather than going for that foot, it would have to have really strong muscles in order to lift that heavy tail up, Mm -hmm. muscles that could be used for swinging instead of lifting. More importantly, hitting the animal high on the leg would be less effective because it's covered in muscle and fat that would cushion the impact, making it less likely to do damage Mm. and probably less painful. But also hitting low in the leg is more likely to knock the foot out from under it, which also could make the theropod fall.
1: Sweep the leg.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So for a lot of theropods, falling could be as damaging as a club to the foot, so even if they just get off balance by getting hit really hard in the foot, that would be trouble. Yep. But again, it's also more fragile bones. It's easier to hit. It's So going for that low point in the foot is really the, the winning strategy if you're using your tail as a club weapon. Obviously, our assumptions have changed over time. First, we thought ankylosaur tails were just limp behind them, like many lizards and other early dinosaur depictions. When this paper was published... They used the assumption that the tail was stiff and straight from the hips to the tip of the tail. Hmm. But now the tails are almost always reconstructed concave up to talk about it mathematically. But in other words, they start out downward at the hip and then they sort of flatten out more parallel with the ground, keeping them fairly high off the ground compared to this description.
1: They're not dragging at all.
0: No. And this description didn't have them dragging either, but they were like just barely off the ground in more modern reconstructions. Basically, you've got the stiff base of the tail and the stiff end of the tail. And the flexible part in between is curving to hold it up higher. You know, it's like curving up away from the ground to Mm -hmm. keep the tail a little bit higher. And one reason that we know this is likely is because we've got that evidence of ankylosaurus hitting each other on the sides, sort of backing up to each other, bashing each other for, you know, competing with mates. Speaking of competing with mates... And that (laughs) headbutting hypothesis. Victoria Arbor at SVP in 2016 said normal animals evolve weaponry on their head to defend resources, including (laughs) competing for mates. Mm -hmm. But under the right conditions, weaponry develops on their tails instead. And the conditions she came up with were that they are four legged, herbivorous, have a stiff thorax, a wide pelvis, and are heavy meaning over 500 kilograms or about a 1,000 pounds. This is a pretty rare combination, but there have been turtles, glyptodonts, stegosaurs, ankylosaurs, and sauropods that all meet those criteria and that have all developed tail weaponry. Hmm. Turtles less so, but there are some that have a little bit of something going on in the tail. What I'm
1: hearing in that last little bit there is uh, ankylosaurs had these really cool tails and so did some sauropods.
0: Yeah. Yes, sauropods are cool, too. <laughs> so I want to take a quick sponsor break now because I don't want to interrupt the next segment. But when we get back, I'm going to talk about some corrections from last time.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again that is cncc.edu/dinodig D I N O D I G.
0: So now on to some corrections from last time. Most of these are based on that Victoria Arbor and Jordan Mallon paper from 2017. The biggest change from last time is that we originally said Ankylosaurus was 20 feet long, weighed up to four tons, and had a tiny beak. (laughs) So we used to think that they were 30 feet long and up to six tons. We mentioned that before, Mm -hmm. but now the size estimate had been reduced. Which was the case back seven years ago when we were talking about it. But we've now come full circle because we again think that Ankylosaurus was huge. We estimate that it was probably about eight meters or 26 feet long and weighed about eight tons. Wow. Which is really, really big. It's especially large even for an Ankylosaur. The next largest may have been Zool at about six meters or 20 feet long and about five tons. So a little bit more than half the size by weight. So ankylosaurus was really in a league of its own in terms of size. Mm -hmm. It also had a huge head to match. The largest head was 66 centimeters or two foot, two inches wide.
1: Of ankylosaurus?
0: Yes. Zool's head is about 39 centimeters or one foot, three inches wide. Hmm. So again, almost twice as wide a head than the next biggest ankylosaur. The exact length of the head, unfortunately, is unknown because we don't have the tip of the beak of any of them, but it's also roughly two feet, which puts it in the same overall head size ballpark as a hippo head. Oh, And hippos have enormous heads. That's
1: why you were looking at hippo skulls. (laughs) It
0: is. Yeah, (laughs) they are insanely big, although ankylosaur heads are actually wider than hippo heads and more triangular just in general. Mm hmm. This is definitely one of the reasons Ankylosaurus is the coolest dinosaur, is that the fact that it's the biggest ankylosaur. (laughs) (laughs) So if you like ankylosaurus, ankylosaurus is the coolest one. But anyway, despite its huge head, its teeth were smaller than other ankylosaurus, Mm. which is super weird. Yep. It might have had small teeth because by the late Cretaceous, there were lots of fruiting plants available, and maybe that's what ankylosaurus was eating, so it didn't need big Teeth to chew through the softer foods. Bash
1: its food with its tail, and then it was softened up.
0: <laughs> Maybe <laughs> because that's one use of the tail. Really like the
1: idea of using the tail for food purposes.
0: Yeah, this is not anything I came across while researching, but I guess that's a... it's
1: pure speculation on my part. <laughs> yeah, purely because I love thinking about food.
0: Yeah, well, some other things it might have eaten are small invertebrates that didn't require really big teeth, or it might have dug for roots and tubers sort of like a pig or a boar or something Mm -hmm. that's based on the forelimb and shoulder bones having pretty big muscle attachment points that would have been good for digging and also based on the nostrils being high on the snout Mm -hmm. so it could have like dug just like a boar you know like plow first with the mouth
1: (laughs) oh that's interesting
0: yeah i wonder if that's like related to the fact that it had this certain type of beak and like a triangular head
1: and all that could be Those triangular heads were good for something. Yes. Just not fighting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We also originally said paleontologists call ankylosaurus a living tank because it had plates of bone as body armor, similar to what we see in modern crocodiles or armadillos, which is a pretty good comparison, although much more like a crocodile than an armadillo because... It didn't have overlapping plates like an armadillo does, Mm -hmm. which is more like the original description of Ankylosaurus where the armor was really close together. We think there were some gaps in between, partly because we have that borealopelta now and we could see preserved in a very lifelike way, also Zool, Mm -hmm. what its armor arrangement was. It probably didn't start out that way though. In living animals, specifically crocodilians, osteoderms don't form until the animal hatches from the egg. Hmm. which is unlike the Bumpy character in Camp Cretaceous, which was born with several obvious osteoderms. Oh, that's yeah. the nickname Bumpy. Its osteoderms were much smaller, so it's on the right track of reality. But in all likelihood, a baby ankylosaur wouldn't have any bumps on it at all. Although without any bumps, it would look pretty nondescript, which mm-hmm. is probably why they added them for the show.
1: Plus, you got to give it a name like Bumpy. Yeah. Give it a reason to have that name.
0: Well, they could have encountered it uh, like a couple months after it hatched. Oh, yeah. but then but...
1: they wouldn't have the bond.
0: Yeah, exactly. In the original episode, we also said its tongue was more mobile in its mouth than other dinosaurs. And it wasn't attached in as many places so it could move food around in its mouth. We still think that is pretty likely. pynacosaurus has signs of stress on bones in the mouth, probably meaning it used a muscular tongue a lot. That's the interpretation of it. And there is similar anatomy in salamanders with prehensile tongues that can pick up food with just their tongue. Mm. So it's possible that Ankylosaurus also had this really cool extra mobile tongue, able to do all sorts of cool stuff. And it's like that cool piece of paleo art that we have hanging in our house of Ankylosaurus drinking water, lapping it up Mm -hmm. (laughs) like a dog, basically, out of some water. Maybe that was possible.
1: Armored hydration. That's the name of the art.
0: Yep. Yep. A few other things that are still considered valid, that it had a good sense of smell, that it was very wide, so predators would have had to flip it over in order to find a weak point.
1: Which would have been so hard, it's so heavy.
0: Yes. And there's the possibility, if it could dig, that it could do the the armadillo style of defense where they just dig down a little bit Mm -hmm. and then just sort of get their legs underground and then they're just like a big spiky speed bump. (laughs) (laughs) And again, Ankylosaurus is a part of the family Ankylosauridae. Fossils of this family have been found on every continent but Africa, is what we said at the time. But I think we made the Ankylosauridae versus Ankylosaur faux pas there, since we only have Notosaurids and unidentifiable Ankylosaurs from South America. So if we're going with Ankylosaurs instead of Ankylosaurids, Mm -hmm. we now have an Ankylosaur from every continent. Hmm. At the time, we already had an ankylosaur from Madagascar, some material. But now we also have that crazy Spicomelus ankylosaur from Morocco. With the rib? Yes. It's got spikes fused directly to the rib. And that's on the main continent of Africa, not on Madagascar. So if you wanted one from the main part of Africa, now it's on all seven continents. So the title of the episode is Why Ankylosaurus... Is the best dinosaur, and I do need to back that up. Yes. <laughs> so, my first reason is that it's the namesake of one of the most unique groups of dinosaurs, the ankylosaurs. Mm,
1: there's a lot of namesake dinosaurs, though.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's also the biggest ankylosaur, and size is half of what makes dinosaurs cool. Right, sauropods. So, the biggest one.
1: Sauropods. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is one thing that sauropods don't have is it's got such impressive armor that it could live alongside T-Rex, the hardest biting land animal of all time, and not need to run away. Yeah. We don't even know if a single sauropod could handle living alongside T-Rex.
1: I know. But they were so big.
0: (laughs) They were, but they weren't there for some reason.
1: But some predators didn't go after them because they were so big.
0: Yeah. But T-Rex, the ultimate dinosaur predator, might have been able to take down a sauropod.
1: Will. See, we need more fossils, I think.
0: Yeah. But for me, I think the personification I give Ankylosaurus of standing up to bullies is why I like them so much. (laughs) An alternative title of this episode I considered was Ankylosaurus was the Teddy Roosevelt of dinosaurs. Why? But I thought that was a little bit weird for our show. So Teddy Roosevelt came up with the big stick diplomacy, as Mm -hmm. it's called. Roosevelt attributed It to a West African proverb, quote, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Mm. There aren't any records of that actually being a West African proverb. So he might have just made that up and being like a tongue in cheek. Hey, there's this old proverb, but Mm -hmm. it's not actually a proverb. As a random bit of trivia, Roosevelt popularized the expression at the Minnesota State Fair in 1901, four days before McKinley was assassinated.
1: It is a random bit of trivia.
0: And he became president. The philosophy has been expanded to five points. And basically they are, you want to have a capable force that an adversary can't ignore, i.e. the big stick. Or
1: a big tail, club tail.
0: (laughs) Exactly. You want to act justly towards others, never bluff strike only when prepared to strike hard, and allow an adversary to save face in defeat.
1: I don't know if the other four points you can extend to Ankylosaurus. Oh, I can, and I
0: will. So whether or not Teddy Roosevelt always followed those guidelines is up for debate, but I think Ankylosaurus certainly did.
1: That's interesting.
0: (laughs) So as you mentioned, (laughs) it definitely had a big stick that couldn't be ignored. The tail was at least three meters or 10 feet long, with spikes running the length and a massive weight on the end. That's sort of the ultimate animal version of a big stick.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Acting justly, Ankylosaurus was probably an herbivore. In fact, by the time Ankylosaurus evolved, it may not have even been an omnivore. It might have just been focusing on fruit and leaves and things Mm -hmm. like that. And it probably only used its club when competing with mates and for defense, it certainly wasn't chasing anything down to bully it oh, using I its see. tail. Oh, Okay. In terms of bluffing, since Ankylosaurus was happy just to eat plants, I'm not sure why it would need to fake aggression at anything. That doesn't make a lot of sense for Ankylosaurus.
1: Uh, maybe when competing with mates.
0: Mate, but that's not really a bluff. They're mm. going to actually have to back that up. For striking hard when needed, Zul, the destroyer of shins at six meters and two and a half tons was considered capable of, you know, destroying a shin. Right. Ankylosaurus was up to nine meters and maybe even up to nine tons on the upper end of the estimate. It was truly a tank. It's hard to imagine an animal striking much harder than an ankylosaurus could with its tail. So I think striking hard when needed. It's pretty well covered.
1: Oh, wait, territory. If it ever competed for territory, it might have bluffed.
0: Baby. That, I mean, that one doesn't really apply that well because bluffing is verbal. So it's a oh, whole thing. Oh, I see. Okay. The last point is allowing saving face. And again, Ankylosaurus isn't pursuing anything, friend or foe. So if an adversary wants to stop fighting, all it has to do is leave the area.
1: <laughs> I see where you came up with these things. They make sense. But I'd also argue that there's a lot we don't know about dinosaur behavior.
0: Yeah, but I, you can interpret a fossil of an ankylosaurus pretty well to say it's not chasing anything.
1: Mm.
0: It seems pretty obvious. And it's sort of like a porcupine. Like mm-hmm. porcupines aren't set up to be antagonistic. You don't really have to observe them that much to know that they're not really going to chase after things because all their weaponry is pointed backwards. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> Unless they were really good at running backwards, I guess. Mm. But you're right. Most of these things apply to sauropods too, except the weaponry of Ankylosaurus is a little more obvious and being covered in spikes also makes it just a little bit more big stick armory.
1: Well, sauropods were bigger in general, so they didn't need as big a stick.
0: Yeah. But their large size also means that sauropods probably squished a lot more helpless victims.
1: On accident. <laughs> we don't know for sure.
0: They weren't walking softly, which is an alternative version of the expression.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they did anything malicious on purpose.
0: That's a hard one to know for either of the dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, that's. I'll give you that. Doesn't mean I can't think it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I appreciate sauropods too. They're probably my second favorite group. Or, <laughs> well, I don't know. Therisunosaurs are pretty awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Sauropods are still my favorite. They've got a lot going on too. And speaking of sauropods, now onto our dinosaur of the day, Egyptosaurus, which was a request from paleomike716 via our Patreon and Discord. So thank you. Aegyptosaurus was a titanosaur sauropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Egypt, found in the Bahariya formation. It looked like other sauropods. It had the columnar legs, walked on the four legs, had the long tail, the long, thick neck, and the small head. Aegyptosaurus was estimated to be 49 feet or 15 meters long and weighs 7 tons, and its tail may have helped as a counterweight for its body. The type species is Aegyptosaurus. Baharigensis, and that genus name means Egypt's lizard. And then the species name, of course, refers to where it was found, Baharia Formation. It was named in 1932 by Ernst Stromer, who also named Spinosaurus. The holotype of Egyptosaurus included three caudal vertebrae, a partial scapula, and some limb bones. Fossils have also been found in other locations in the Sahara Desert. These fossils were stored in Munich but unfortunately were destroyed in 1944 during World War II. Fragments still exist, mostly from indeterminate specimens from Niger. Egyptosaurus is one of the dinosaurs featured in the documentary Lost Dinosaurs of Egypt. Thank you PaleoMike716 for mentioning that. And other animals that lived around the same time and place as Egyptosaurus include the sauropods Dicreosaurus, and Paralititan. Theropods, including Spinosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, Bahariosaurus, Olaphrosaurus, and Sigilmosaurus, crocodiliforms, Plesiosaurs, Fish, Crustaceans, and Mollusks.
0: And our fun fact is going to be an update from our episode 5 fun fact. Because, again, we've learned some more things. Yeah. So in episode 5, our fun fact was that osteoderms had blood supply, and they could have been used for cooling or for display by blushing, by putting blood in their osteoderms. This
1: is for ankylosaurus specifically?
0: Yes, I think so. Maybe just in general ankylosaurus. But either way, it's probably not true. Osteoderms are bones that form in the skin, aka the dermis, thus osteoderm. Mm. Since they grow in the dermis, they can be covered by the epidermis, If you haven't already seen a Gila monster, you should definitely check it out. They're covered in osteoderms, giving it a really bumpy appearance. They're also toxic. I think they're poisonous. They have a venomous bite. They're in Arizona. Hmm. Really interesting animal. Every bump on the Gila monster is an osteoderm embedded in its skin. Lots of places call the osteoderms a type of scale. They'll say they have these interesting round scales called osteoderms. They are not scales. They are osteoderms. They are below the skin, not on top (laughs) of the skin like scales. Since the Gila monster has skin over its osteoderms, its pattering continues over the osteoderms. And theoretically, if it had chromatophores or something like a chameleon, it could change color above the osteoderms as well. As a side fun fact, the epidermis can further be covered by scales. So you can have scales on the top, then the layer of the epidermis, then osteoderms beneath that further strengthening the skin. And lots of reptiles actually do have this as just an extra layer of armor.
1: That's a lot of armor.
0: It's pretty cool. If ankylosaurus had skin over its osteoderms, they might have been able to blush. And this has been proposed for stegosaur plates, for example, that maybe they had skin covering them. But it has also been proposed that stegosaur plates were covered in keratin, Mm -hmm. in which case, maybe not. Now that we found Borealopelta, we know that the large osteoderms on ankylosaurs were likely covered with keratin because there was keratin on the osteoderms preserved on Borealopelta. This would have given the osteoderms a more horn-like appearance than skin with armor embedded in it like you see on the Gila monster. Hmm. It's pretty similar to a turtle shell in terms of the overall sort of appearance of what these osteoderms on an ankylosaur would have looked like on an individual basis, you know, those big bumps that turtles have on their shell. I haven't been able to find any accounts of turtles being able to change color on their shells quickly. They often do change color slowly as they grow up. They start out usually in muted colors like brown in order to blend in. Once they're bigger, they might add fancy colors and patterns for display. But those changes occur slowly over time about the fastest they might occur is seasonally in order to attract mates but definitely not something like blushing where it's a quick change in color that's temporary
1: that's too bad
0: and it makes sense that they can't change their color since keratin isn't living tissue the same way that skin is it's just like our hair and our fingernails and things like that so an ankylosaurus changing the color of its horns would be like us changing the color of our hair spontaneously basically
1: without dyeing it
0: yeah And then changing it back, you know, blushing, in Mm -hmm. other words. Ankylosaur osteoderms are often called scutes, and the term is used in different ways for different animals. It's really weird, which is why we almost always just use the term osteoderm instead of the term scute. But most often, the term scute is used to describe the outer keratin part covering an osteoderm or scale. Other times, it's used to mean the entire osteoderm keratin complex But it seems to always be used for structures that are covered in keratin rather than skin. So they can be covered in skin like the Gila monster, or they cannot be like on a turtle where they just have the scute and the keratin on top. Since we're almost always looking at bones, I always use the term osteoderm because we know there was a bone there. (laughs) It is in fact an osteoderm whether or not there was a scute on top of it or there was keratin on top of it making the whole thing a scute, if you want to use the word that way we can't be certain. But after finding Borealopelta, we confirmed that the large osteoderms on ankylosaurs were scutes or covered in, cu- in scutes, if you prefer. So they could potentially blush skin covering an osteoderm if they were covering an osteoderms. Maybe some of the smaller osteoderms did have skin covering them, but probably not a thick keratin covering on an osteoderm, aka a scute. And that probably wouldn't be able to blush because mm. it's covered by a big horn, basically but I never say never because biology is super weird. Yeah, It's just unlikely that ankylosaurus could blush their scutes, like we said way back in episode five.
1: Oh, that would be fun to see.
0: It would be. I still hope that someone can do a more in-depth analysis on stegosaurus and maybe figure out if that was possible.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. And if you want even more dinosaur goodness and reminders of when our new episodes come out, then head over to our website, inodino.com and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks again, and until next time.